This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. This episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Honig, who is a distinguished senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Tom is also the former vice chairman of the FDIC and an economist. Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be with you today. Thank you for having me. So before we get talking about things like monetary policy, inflation, and other issues that you work on, I was curious if you could give us a little background, how you became an economist, how you went to the FDIC, and then how you're out Mercatus. How did that happen? Well, uh, first of all, I, I uh, became an economist because I uh, took a like most people, I took a course in of economics in college and really thoroughly enjoyed it and um, decided that, that was the area that I was interested in. And um, so I took a major there in economics and a minor in mathematics. And then when I graduated, I went in the service a while, but came back and then went to uh, return to get a PhD in economics. And then actually, I, after I left the uh, graduate school, I went to the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City as an economist and in banking, and although my specialty was in banking and money, and I actually worked there for, for years and became president of the bank and a member of the of the Federal Open Market Committee. So that's how, that's how I got involved in monetary policy and things that interest me there. And then when I finished up uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, I got a phone call and was asked if I'd be interested in being uh, at uh, at the FDIC, and I said yes, I might, and uh, that's how I ended up at the FDIC as as vice chair at that point. And then you know, then I went to Mercatus. More after that, I retired from the FDIC, left the FDIC. My term was finished, and wanted to do something more and. Um, I'm more of a market-oriented economist and uh, also more of a um, Austrian economist than I am a Keynesian economist. And so Mercatus kind of fit my interests, if you would. And so I joined them, very happy to have them invite me to join and was very pleased to do so. And that's what I've been doing mostly. I wanted to start with something basic um, that maybe you can clarify. There's a distinction often made in policy discussions between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Could you explain that distinction? Yeah, maybe a little bit, I hope. Um, fiscal policy is really the government spending and taxing programs. So fiscal policy is, you get an argument, does reducing taxes uh, stimulate the economy by putting more money in the hands of the consumer or or making investment more profitable and therefore more greater interest? Uh, do I increase taxes to fund new social programs? Um, how do I do that? So that's fiscal policy. That's spending money and taking money in. Monetary policy is printing money. And so um, what monetary policy does is through the uh, ability of the uh, Federal Reserve, and it is a unique monopoly in its ability to create 
money. So if the Federal Reserve wants to expand money, it goes to the banks and says, I want to buy your government securities um, or your mortgage-backed securities, whatever, and I will you you I will take yours and I will create a credit in your account at the Federal Reserve out of nothing. So I'm I'm the only institution that can actually enter uh, on the books a payment to these banks for buying government securities. Now that 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 expands then the amount of money because that's new money created to buy those securities. Now the the bank can then take that money that you just created and go buy more government bonds if you want, so that you have this expansionary ability uh, in terms of printing money and buying uh, government debt uh, or other debt to expand the amount of money in the economy, and that lowers interest rates, and that's how you then influence the level of activity within the economy by lowering interest rates and putting more money out there, rather than on the fiscal side, spending more money or taxing less uh, in terms of stimulating. So that's the distinction between fiscal policy and monetary policy. It also seems like there's a connection there too, right? So if I don't wanna tax people at a higher rate, but I wanna fund government programs, I might deal with that on the monetary side rather than the fiscal side. Well, the way you do that is uh, the pandemic and the government's programs for that is a very good example. In, in 2019, the government spent roughly $4.5 trillion. And in 2020, it spent $6.5 trillion. And a good part of that was, and, and there, were, there were no increases in taxes, uh, direct increases in income tax or corporate taxes. So what you got then was the Federal Reserve buying these bonds, putting them on their balance sheet and creating money so that the government could spend it. So there's most definitely a connection between fiscal policy and monetary policy, and it can be as tight or as independent as the leadership of the political group and the leadership of the Fed want it to be. Uh, in other words, the Fed is supposedly independent, uh, and therefore it can say, no, I'm not going to print more money. Interest rates are going to go up, and you're going to, you know, you're going to have to uh, live with that because uh, we have to ration the amount of money in the economy. You can either have the government spend it, the private sector spend it, um, or the Fed can print money to allow you to spend it without having to increase taxes. And that's how it gets very complicated and very political. This is this is more of a uh, speculative question, but it's something I've wondered about for a while, that maybe one way you expand government programs um, and grow the federal government is through monetary policy. And you do that because raising taxes isn't very politically popular. People don't like, I mean, a very quick way I would assume to get kicked out of office or not be elected is to talk about raising taxes. This is why I think when taxation is talked about, it's usually targeted to the super wealthy. It's considered uh, much more politically feasible. Yeah. But I'm wondering if that's why we find quantitative easing, easy money policies. If part of that explanation is just, it's easier to do it on the monetary side in political terms than on the fiscal side. Well, it is easier until it isn't. And I'll, let me explain that to you. Let, let me just give you an example of, 
So in 2009, during the last great financial crisis, well, the Great Recession, the amount of debt in the economy was roughly $11 trillion, okay? And the amount of debt in the economy today, the amount of federal debt was uh, then $11 trillion. Today it is $30 trillion. So it was much easier to borrow than it was to tax uh, during that period for a very expansionary programs. In other words, from spending less than $4 trillion to now spending $6.5 trillion every year. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet in 2009 was about, well, let's say, let's say just prior to the great financial crisis, was about $900 billion. When in 2016, as they finished up their first quantitative series of uh, money printing, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve was then four and a half trillion. So it went from less than a trillion to four and a half trillion. And most of that purchases of that was government debt or mortgage-backed securities. Today, the Fed's balance sheet is $9 trillion. And most of that debt, and most of that balance sheet is made up of uh, government securities debt and mortgage bank securities and currency, of course. So you see that it was much easier for the government, and that's why they were very happy to, to, to spend this money as long as the Fed was willing to print it, keep interest rates low, uh, and allow everything to go. Now, can you do it forever? Well, the let's take a look at that. So we've just gone through this major spending increase where the government's spending went from four and a half trillion to six and a half trillion over the last two years. And printing went from four and a half trillion to nine trillion dollars. Now we have inflation of eight and a half percent. Now inflation is a tax and it's a very regressive tax. So uh, you have had the effect of taxing the American people at an eight and a half percent rate uh, at the current inflation rate. So you, you pay, pay me now or pay me later is kind of, the, kind of the message there because there are no free lunches. And so it finally caught up with us. We've been spending money, printing money, spending money, printing. Now that's just in the prices. But if you think about it, over the last decade, when the Federal Reserve has been buying these government debt instruments and the government is printing money, asset inflation, the price of a home, the stock market, other kinds of assets have absolutely uh, ballooned in value. A home that cost $300,000 in 2005 is um, more than a million today. So we have been paying for that very expansionary fiscal and monetary policy over time through higher prices that we have to pay for everything. So are we really better off? That's a question that you have to ask yourself, especially now that you're facing it on a daily basis with higher grocery bills, higher energy bills, higher gasoline prices uh, that we all have to uh, 
deal with and work through. So. so here's maybe a silly question. With 8.5 um, level of installation and a lot of these issues people are facing, why not just print even more money and give it to people to buy gas and groceries and just do this in perpetuity? Well, just continue to, so we'll have wheelbarrows of money for like a dozen eggs, but we'll just keep doing that. Well, that's a very good question. And in fact, we have done that, right? We did that in 2020 and 2021. We literally printed more money. We gave it to people in terms of enhanced unemployment benefits, enhanced child credit. People that were working in very good jobs, making $100,000 a year, were getting government payments. And it did stimulate the economy. But the fact is, the real thing that you have to watch is, are you able to produce more goods? Because that's what you want. And if you're not, then the only thing that's going to happen is higher prices. And that's what we learned over the last decade. And now we're learning it uh, in a more immediate sense by daily prices going up. And when you said wheelbarrows, that's a wonderful example. Because in the Weimar Republic of Germany, uh, when they tried this very same experiment, they were literally having to put wheelbarrows of money out there to carry it to buy their bread by the end of the day because prices were rising at a thousand percent a day. And so you 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 can play this you can play this game, but the only question is if it doesn't produce more goods for us to consume, the only thing that can happen is higher prices. And I'm not sure anyone really wants that because you if you think about it, if I'm a laborer today. And I think, oh, I got a 5% raise. Oh, that's wonderful, except my prices have gone up eight and a half percent. So I'm actually behind. So now I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of that by giving you more money. Well, that's fine. Only prices will go up to 12%. So I'll get a 10% increase. I'm still behind. You can't you can't beat it by playing a charade game with printing money and pretending there's something there. The only thing that happened is those who hold assets. Those who are wealthy, they get wealthier. That, more than the tax system, creates the inequality of wealth in this country. And that's what people tend to forget. It sounds like what you're saying is that money and wealth are different things. You can have wheelbarrows full of cash and be very poor. You can have wheelbarrows full of cash, and the wealthy will have dump trucks full of cash because the, the, they hold the greatest number of assets. And so if I have a house that's worth a million dollars 10 years ago and it's worth $15 million today, I'm, I, have, I have the same house, it's worth more, but those who only had a house worth, say, 100,000 and it's worth 300,000, relatively speaking, they didn't gain as much as the wealthy. So, you, so there is a difference between wealth. Wealth is your ownership of real assets or or productive cap capacity or the ability to have goods and services and assets. Uh, money is what you carry in your wallet, but if you need more of it to buy the same amount of goods, you're not wealthier. You just have more money. Well, yeah, we could helicopter a bunch of cash um, over poor countries in Africa. It wouldn't make them any richer. I mean, I guess they could use it to sit on or something. I don't, I don't well, they, in fact, they tried that. The only thing they can do with it is burn it as, as yeah. fuel for the evening. Right. They don't freeze to death if that's where they're, uh, if that's an issue or whatever, or they can yeah. cook their meals if they have any food. But so here's, here's a question then. 
why is there such a uh, such an emphasis on easy money? I mean, if it's if it if it breeds inequality, if it hurts the poor, if it doesn't really do much for innovation and production, is this because the pe- folks who are asset rich just don't have an incentive to change the system? Well, I think there's it's more difficult to answer than that because. For example, I've talked with many people in labor and they think having low interest rates is good because they their mortgage, you know, their mortgage is less they think, but they're paying more for the house. But they don't they don't put that together necessarily. Some do, but many don't. And so you get this idea of easy money. Now, if you're in the market, if you're in the financial system, you love low interest rates because you can speculate more easily because you have access to low cost funds. That's why the financial sector has actually grown more than any other sector over the last decade and a half, because zero interest rates, I can speculate forever, not have to pay it back uh, with as much burden. I don't have to earn as much. I I can speculate, get access to these funds. So there's, there's incentives in terms of what you can grab but in terms of society's overall health, there's not a whole lot that you gain from just printing money. Well, then why not focus more on production and innovation? It seems people well, can that's... get rich in lots of ways. You could help the inequality. Um, we would get richer in general. Well, I mean, what are the downsides to that? Well, the idea is that uh, that's a very good question again. And the fact of the matter is that's what we should focus on. Now, the issue with that is um, you incent people's behavior by encouraging them to invest. If you're going to tax it all, you you discourage that. If you're going to to reallocate it for other types of things, then you're going to discourage that. And so um, it it, it takes an educated populace, an educated Congress, uh, and a wise Congress and a wise administration to think like that. But it's, but in the short run, being able to just hand people money buys you more votes, for example. Now, let me, let me also point out that, so in the spending that's going on, and I'm not saying it isn't worthy of that, but the government spending, about 65% of it is on pensions, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Administration, mostly transfer payments or welfare-like payments. About 16, 17% of it is for national defense, another few percent for the carrying of the debt. So when you think about it, we spend a lot of money on caring for our our population, and that has to be paid for. And this is where the idea of, well, the wealth can afford it. Well, they can, and they do pay proportionally more than this force. But if you get that too much, you think that the only way to, to, uh, to make things right is to tax the rich and to keep interest rates low, which only makes the rich richer, uh, you get this very convoluted system that turns out to be very unstable. Uh, and I think that is what we have been facing over the last decade. I tell people, if you think about it, if you were um, in 2010, you were in the middle, middle lower middle class, middle class. Uh, 10 years later, you were less well off than the very wealthiest. Not because the wealthiest were innovative, 
but because they hold more assets. So you've changed the dynamics from just being holding assets and gaining wealth rather than being innovative. Now, some of the wealthy were innovative. That's what you have. You have Amazon, you have Apple and so forth. And those individuals have brought great wealth to the country. Um, so it does pay to innovate and to create real goods. That's where the priority should be. But we're so caught up in this world of ours that the, we want this so-called fair taxation. Uh, therefore, we want to redistribute towards the poor. Um, and that becomes a controversy rather than, well, wait a minute, let's create, let's allow businesses to create wealth who then employ people and make them wealthier and do it in a world of stable prices. And I'm not talking 2% inflation, I'm talking 0% inflation. So that when you buy something, you know what it really costs in the long run. You said earlier that um, a shift in policy would require a wise Congress and informed voters. And there's been work by some economists on rational ignorance, that voters as individuals don't really have much of an incentive to be informed because their vote doesn't really count for much, generally speaking, in deciding election outcomes. Being informed or uninformed doesn't matter that much to the individual. But I'm wondering if maybe when you're facing crises like inflation, and lots of people now are starting to pay attention, that that might give them an incentive to become informed, at least more than they would be otherwise. Well, I think that's right. I mean, it's talked about a great deal. I mean, people were losing ground over the last decade. Now suddenly they see it in everyday prices and they're now figuring it out. And that's why I say it's, it, it, you know, now it's a little late. You've got the eight and a half percent inflation. I've, I disagree. I think an informed voter all along gives you a much better set of outcomes. You cannot have a successful democracy, in my opinion, and I think history proves this, without an informed, uh, a, a form, uh, an informed voter group, uh, citizen. And so we, we have allowed ourselves to become less informed by laziness, I guess, by not you know, reading, not understanding how many people really understand economics, how many people uh, think about it. Uh, they're more interested, and I understand this, I am too interested in how the local uh, football team's doing or the local baseball team's doing. They, they can spout off all the statistics that you want for those players, but you know, do they really know the impact of lower interest rates over the long term? Or do they know uh, how much our financial system's grown relative to our other parts of our real economy? That they don't know. That's what creates the real wealth there. And so I think we need a much more informed population, a citizenry group. And I think we'd have much better outcomes if we did. Oh, yeah, no argument there. Um, it definitely is a group. Um, it did have me thinking, though, when you were talking earlier about the breakdown of the federal budget and what gets allocated to what. And I've, I've thought this for a while. I find it strange that the, you might want to call them welfare state liberals, people who want a safety net for the poor and people who, through no fault of their own, fall through the cracks, so to speak, um, that they would be particularly hawkish on debt only insofar as you don't want your budget being eaten up by interest payments. So if you continue to grow the debt and interest payments just continue to chip away what you can spend on social programs, that seems antithetical to providing the welfare state to begin with. Well, the, the one area that, I, this is my opinion, that I think um, is misunderstood 
is that is the one you're talking about because most people in government don't really care if they have to borrow more money to pay the interest on the debt because you can print more money to do that if you got a cooperative central bank and so they don't think about it it's we need to do this oh yeah yeah the debt will go up yeah the interest payments will go up we we'll have to be mindful of that but we'll print more money and then you'll get more inflation but that's the tax that's the tax right there so that's how they think about it it's like a money illusion for the the political class uh, that they have and uh, i've seen it uh, when you think about how much we've spent like i just said from a 10 trillion dollar total debt of of our government in a, in a decade and two years, it becomes a $30 trillion. Uh, you're, you know, you should be concerned about that, except you, you're not. You're still wanting to do new programs and help people. And you may, your heart may be in the right place, or you may be just buying votes. I can't, you know, I can't judge what your motives are. But the fact of the matter is, its effects are deleterious over time. And uh, I would say that you actually, if you think about it, you're reducing the productivity of the economy. So we have an economy that might be with less government debt and interest payments and so forth. You might have an economy that's more innovative that can give you productivity improvements of 3% a year or two, let's just say two and a half percent a year. That's modest. Uh, and by engaging in these policies that redistribute income or cause inflation, especially cause inflation, your productivity goes down to just two and a quarter percent. Over a generation, that's an enormous effect on wealth. And we don't think about that. It's and sort of like compound interest with right. like an investment. Over time, it adds up to be... Absolutely. Yeah. It's compounding your returns. Yeah. And when you, when you trade your long-term for your short-term immediate, you trade away your future and countries become poorer. I was actually curious about that too, the relationship between monetary policy and easy money and the dollar as the reserve currency of the world. Do you think there's a lot more slack in monetary policy because of the, I guess you'd call it the currency dominance of the dollar? I think that is a factor. Yes, because if it weren't the, if it weren't the dollar, if it weren't the currency of choice globally, other countries would want to borrow less of our money. Uh, so because they're, they're not the... It's not the currency you need to trade. And so you want less of it. That means when we issue debt, it's harder to sell it. It's harder to get the debt sold, which means interest rates have to go up, which means then it begins to affect the population again. And therefore they uh, object to that or, or your economy suffers for it. And therefore uh, it becomes it's a, a source of discipline. That's why emerging markets can't print money like crazy because Capital flows out immediately, and you see the effects of that. And that's why we have a huge advantage, but it's like any advantage. If you abuse it, you will lose it in time. It may take a generation, may may, may take two generations. Like any wealthy family, uh, if it becomes lazy and unproductive, it loses its wealth, and that's a risk. And they say, well, Tom, you can't compare it to a family. I said, yeah, you can. It's, it's, it's huge, but if you are not productive, you do lose your place in line. Well, that was another question I had sort of related, which is, um, and maybe I'm running these two issues together, but taking Russia off of the SWIFT system and preventing them from using their dollars, um, combined with 
what seems to be too much money being printed. I'm wondering if we're basically just flirting with losing our status as a reserve currency. I mean, it, we have China nipping at our heels, economically speaking. It's not as if it's like a crazy thing that in 20, 30 years, America just isn't the reserve currency it was. Maybe we fall a bit. Maybe we lose that status entirely. I mean, I don't know much about this, but I'm just curious if, if we're sort of flirting with that with these policies. Well, the, the SWIFT system is one issue. Um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's an issue of war. And in any war, you take casualties. You don't only inflict casualties, you take casualties. And that's part of the effect of the sanctions and forcing Russia off the SWIFT system. Um, it does punish them. They are isolated more, but it also affects us. But that's the price you pay for war. But your other issue, um, if, you, if the US dollar, the US dollar is the global currency, not, not because it's the dollar, but because the US has over the last hundred years been the dominant economy in the globe. And that I think is, gives it economic status. And therefore that's the, you know, that's the currency you want because you can trade it anywhere because its goods are tradable anywhere. And it's currency, you know, you can always rely on being able to spend. And so that's really the risk long-term, not from the going off the SWIFT, that's a short-term, but the long-term effect of printing too much money over an extended period of time relative to your wealth generating uh, activities and capacity. So now you say China, China's nipping in our heel. Well, China has built its productive capacity. Now it does not have a stronger rule of law, although that the world may be seen that different with the, the sanctions that have been imposed. Um, that, and if that were to stay indefinitely, it certainly would affect that, that, that reliance on the dollar, but that you hope will be corrected. So then the real issue with, with China is, do they have a rule of law? Do they have markets? Do they have a good deep capital market? Is that where you really want your money in, uh, to stay? Can you really get to it even when there isn't a war going on? So those are the things that will def decide whether or not the US or China remains the, the currency. You know, the dollar isn't 100% reserve currency. The euro does play part of that role. And I would say the, the, the renminbi is the least. It only serves about 4% for settlement, but they want to be more than that. But it will take not just their, the strength of their economy, but the strength of their capital markets, the rule of law. That's really what we have to look for uh, as the possibility of replacing the dollar as a reserve currency. And remember, on a global basis, it's like, it's like a college, it's graded on the curve. So who's better than us, even when we're not as good as we should be? I once heard it described as the dirty laundry theory, like your washer and dryer breaks and your, all of your laundry is dirty. You just, if, you know, you're, you're desperate. So you pick the least dirty item and that's the dollar currently. Yeah, that's the dollar. It's, it's the least dirty. <laughs> But well, I, I, I suppose what I was getting at with the last question and to articulate that a little, a little better, when my understanding was that the United States has prevented Russia from using their dollars as part of the sanction. And the thought in the back of my mind was, hmm, if I was another country, I'd be watching this thinking, what if the United States decides to do that to me? Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, it, I think anybody with a brain, anybody thinking about this would think, hmm, 
you know, maybe not now, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, I cross the United States and for, for whatever reason, and they just decide you're sanctioned. That would, that would worry me. Now, maybe not as much as China, as you pointed out, the rule of law and whatnot, property rights, but it may, it would still worry me. Sure. And that's why you would, that's why you've seen countries diversify more their holdings of other currencies. The euro, for example, has held more. Uh, I, uh, I don't know of any other currency that serves that purpose because uh, China is not right now prolific in terms of uh, used as a settlement source of some, although they're working to try and get other Asian countries to, be, to, to tie themselves to the remember to, to build, to start this process of becoming a reserve currency. But you're right, if the U.S. were to arbitrarily engage in issuing sanctions on anyone that they got mad at, then you would see sources looking for new sources. And that's really kind of going on today. I mean, China's would very much like to re replace the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, but it, there's wanting and then there's able. And at the moment, the dollar still is the preferred means of settlement for very good reasons. It is a large, successful economy. It does have a rule of law. You have to at least be at war uh, to get sanctioned or in a very deliberate warlike environment like Iran. So, so as long as that, and, and so if I'm another country, a South American country, another Asian country, I'm still probably much better off with the dollar than I am, the renminbi or even the euro. The idea of China as a reserve currency is terrifying for a variety of reasons, uh, unless they democratize and liberalize more. That's not, that's not on the horizon. And therefore, that's why they only have 4% in global settlement volume. And we have, uh, I think we have maybe 60 or better percent, and the euro has a, a big chunk now too. I've noticed though, from, from my understanding, the ruble is strengthened again, or ruble, ruble, the, the Russian currency. Mm -hmm. Is that because they're not able to use dollars? So because they're restricted from other currencies, they then have to fall back on their domestic currency? Well, they've for all kinds of reasons. One is the, there's no sanction that's perfect, uh, number one. Number two, um, they've, they've raised their interest rates dramatically to make their, for the attractiveness of going into the ruble, depending on where exchange rates go, more attractive. Thirdly, they have now uh, at least are attempting to demand that their energy, which they still trade and Europe still buys, be paid in rubles. That means you have to have a demand for rubles. That's got to increase the, the value of rubles. So those are the factors that are bringing the ruble back up. Now, whether it can stay there over time, if we stay at war, those are all questions that I can't answer. I doubt that many can, but certainly Russia will try and continue to be paid in rubles to keep demand strong. They'll keep their interest rates higher. Um, but whether they'll be successful, that's another question. Some people seem to think that inflation is going to start coming down over the next couple of years. I don't know what the basis of this is, but that's what I've read. And others seem to be skeptical because the Fed's not raising interest rates at nearly the clip or the pace they would need to. And it's hard to predict these things. These things are difficult to predict. Yeah. But I'm curious if you think the truth is closer to one or the other, or maybe somewhere in the middle. Fed Reserve is projecting that inflation will come down fairly sharply over the next year. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. But a couple things. There's two factors affecting the inflation outlook. One is the supply side. We've had a pandemic. It's reduced the amount of um, 
goods in the economies globally and therefore prices risen. So the logistics, transportation logistics, that's slow supply and that's been part of it. That will mend itself uh, over time. But that's a small part. On the other side of it is the fact that the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates at zero for an extended period of time. And um, what you have is demand through the spending that I talked about earlier. We went from four and a half trillion in government spending to six and a half trillion. That's coming back down to five and a half trillion, but still very high, right? So you have, you have very strong demand in the economy. You had, and here's, here's where I think it's very important. The recovery from the pandemic started about 18 months ago. And the Federal Reserve kept its printing press, its monetary policy at crisis levels. That is, the, the, when the pandemic struck, it was printing $120 billion of new money every month. And it continued that for 18 months past the start of the recovery. So they put all this money in there and they didn't actually stop easing policy until March of 2022, last month. So that's, that's a huge factor. So now the Federal Reserve is saying, oh my God, we have eight and a half percent inflation. We have to raise interest rates. It's about 18 months too late in terms of controlling inflation. So now you hear talk about, well, we got to raise it 50 basis points immediately. We have to shrink our balance sheet. Well, if you do that, and they probably should, it will slow the economy. And if you do it, uh, if you do it in May and June and August, and raise rates each time, and you bring rates up from zero to two and a half percent in a very short period of time, that's going to be a shock to the economy, because the economy has set an equilibrium around a zero interest rate. Now it has to find this new equilibrium. That's going to be difficult. And if you do that, you increase the likelihood of a recession significantly. So that means you slow the economy to take the demand pressures out of the economy. Unemployment goes up. Now here's the test for the Federal Reserve. And that has happened in the past, through the 70s, for example, the Federal Reserve backed off immediately because political pressure, the public being upset. So you lower interest rates and inflation starts up again. And you do the stop-go policy, and that becomes very, very destabilizing and disruptive. So what they have to do now is they have to get, they have to tighten policy. They have to keep policy tight until inflation gets down closer to 3% uh, at least. Uh, that means they have to be willing to weather a recession without reversing their policy. That will be difficult. That's when you need a Paul Volcker. Okay, that's the last time we did it. Uh, and whether we have that, I don't know. Well, we, only time will tell. But but they have to now tighten policy significantly and they have to keep it tight and they have to risk a serious recession and they have to be willing to withstand the, the blowback from that recession until inflation is brought back down again. And that's no easy task. It reminds me of something I heard the other day on Bloomberg. Some analyst was talking about um, Jerome Powell having to thread the needle between inflation and you know, trying to have at least a minimal recession, trying to avoid the worst of it. And he said that basically the Fed would have to turn on a dime, but that's hard to do. And it's also hard to know where the dime is. And I remember it was, I was in my car, I was driving. And I thought to myself, have these people not read Hayek at all? 
it's like I mean I'm paraphrasing, but it's like economics teaches men that they cannot um, they can't do what they think they can. Uh, I'm, I'm completely butchering this. I think he called it the arrogance of uh, I forget the last part of it. Also, I but what yeah the, the one this idea think, that these markets are so complex and that the the people with backgrounds in economics you would think I, I just don't know what to make of it. It's like did you read it and forget it? Did you read it and not apply it? I, I, I don't know. I, one thing about the economics profession, they've gotten themselves tied up in mathematics, which I understand, um, and models. And, if, and if, the, if reality doesn't fit the model, they ignore reality. And, and that's, that's what's happened. We have, I, I, for the life of me, do not understand how economists trained in monetary economics could allow monetary policy to stay as accommodative as it has over the last year, the year and a half, and not expect inflationary outcomes. It, it's impossible for me to understand that because clearly the government put spending in the hands of the consuming public, and clearly it printed the money to do so. Clearly there is more money chasing the same amount or fewer goods, therefore you should have inflation. And when the recovery started, you should have begun to withdraw. You should have begun to withdraw some of that excess accommodation, so that you didn't build up the inflationary pressures beyond your ability to control it at the back end. But we, but it didn't. So now it's almost like they panicked. Well, we got to raise fifty basis points. We got to do this. We got to shrink our balance sheet. Well, when they do that, if they try and do it in on a dime over a very short period of time, they will create panic and they will create crisis and they will create a worse recession. But I, listening to them now, it worries me that that's what they're gonna try and do. Instead of, we, yes, we went too far, we're gonna tighten policy and we're gonna stick to our guns until inflation's down, but we're gonna try and do it in a way that doesn't shock the economy. It has to adjust from zero to 3%, but it can't do it overnight. It took us more than a decade to get here and the last two years to get even worse, we can't fix it overnight. And that's where I think economists fail because they think of the economy as lines on a chalkboard that all you do is shift them and everything is back into equilibrium. But the shift from A to B takes time and has consequences. And that's what they are not paying attention to. They were so focused on the short run that they have forgot their purpose. And as a central banker once told me, and I've quoted this many times, the central bank's goal is to take care of the long run so the short run can take care of itself. And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten many things, unfortunately. So the United States dollar is a fiat currency. It's based fiduciary, it's based on trust, which is a little frightening if you watch Congress. But anyway, putting that aside. It is, it is yes, it's, yeah, there's nothing, there's no anchor other than the discipline of the FOMC and the discipline of Congress. That, that's that's very worrisome. Um, I would not. I would not. Uh, that does not reassure me at all. Um, but I was wondering if you if you keep abusing, mismanaging monetary policy with easy money. If you're at least if this trend continues over the long term, if this is just going to increase the appetite for cryptocurrencies, currencies that aren't at least at least ones with with safeguards built in where you don't just get to print money, so to speak, or produce crypto money just at the push of a button. And I'm wondering if that's why 
governments seem to be waking up to crypto and, and worried about it, trying to regulate it, restrain it, maybe put you know checks at the off-ramps when you go from crypto back to fiat currencies. Sure. I'm wondering if that's partially what's motivating both the appetite for crypto, but also the appetite to try and rein it in or put guardrails around it? Well, I think to your first point, I do think that cryptocurrency has been helped as a new technology of payments by the Federal Reserve's unmitigated quantitative easing programs. They have been dramatic. Uh, and think about it. Uh, it took 100 years to get the Federal Reserve balance sheet from zero to trillion dollars. It took uh, another year, one year, to get it to two trillion, took four to get it to four and a half trillion, and 10 to get it to nine trillion. So it's gone like an exponential curve up. And so I'm sitting there, I'm saying, well, wait a minute, the only thing that happened to that is, is hyperinflation eventually, right? I'm, I'm sitting there, uh, I'm, one of, I'm one of the individuals who's favoring cryptocurrency and uh, I, I need something else. And so I think that is part, part of the exp uh, explanation for Bitcoin. It's formula driven, it's rule based, it's not easily created, it takes effort, uh, and therefore you can't just push a button, double it, uh, and therefore it becomes, in my mind, a hedge against the falling value of the dollar. And it, now if I tie the technology to it, and it can potentially be a means of payments, it is a means of payment, but it's fairly expensive and cumbersome right now, but technology's very fast changing itself, that becomes a more reliable source for payments and a more uh, steady source of uh, price stability in terms of a hedge against the dollar, then I may in fact invest in it. And that's why you see banks beginning to turn to it and others because it becomes a choice, becomes an alternative. And why not? When you have, your, when you have those responsible in the central banking world, both here and in Europe and elsewhere, uh, printing money at vast quantities, you think for substitutes. So I think it is a contributing factor to the rise of cryptocurrency. If 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 the dollar were you know uh, not being printed wildly, the value of the cryptocurrency I doubt would have been from zero from pennies to sixty thousand dollars and then back to thirty, uh, as people try and figure it out and speculate in it against the dollar. I have two final questions for you, sure. and these are questions I ask all my guests. The first question is this. Can you tell us about a time in your life, either personally or professionally, and what you failed and what you learned from it? Well, I've had, um, I've had failures. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll sum it up in the following way. I've had some pretty big failures, both uh, in my career uh, where I've made mistakes, and I've learned from that the, the, the meaning, the truth of the following statement. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are humble and those who are about to be humble. And I learned from my mistakes, which usually came from my arrogance, my failure to think things through, my confidence beyond my analytical use of my brain to lead me to failure. And I learned from that, that humility does matter and think things through carefully before you act. And uh, it's been a very valuable, those failures have been very valuable to me in reminding me of that statement. My final question, it's one about your legacy. What do you want people to say about your work in 100 years? Another way to put this would be, what do you want on your tombstone? 
Well, on my tombstone, I want, uh, he stood his ground because uh, one of my most difficult periods was when I was a voting member of the FOMC uh, in 2010, when they began the quantitative, quantitative easing program in a recovering economy. And I voted against it in each of my votes for that year, saying that this will not lead to good outcomes. This will lead to instability. It will lead to uh, a misallocation of resources, reduced productivity in our economy, and we shouldn't go this path. That was, shall I say, considered an outlier view. And uh, I stood my ground. And I think uh, in looking back on it, I felt then I was right, and I still feel I was right. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I, hope, I hope this has been useful, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I did very much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.